This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. This time on the Out of Water podcast, we're bringing you part of a message from Pastor Sam Kastensmith in his series, The Miracle Behind the Miracles. In this episode, Sam will begin walking us through the miracles surrounding the life of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Moses. From the plagues of Egypt to the parting of the Red Sea, we begin to learn that every single miracle that God performed in the life of Moses was intended to point us to our Savior, who would prove to be far greater than Moses. Let's go to the Ingram Center Theater at Rio Vista Community Church and Pastor Sam Kastensmith. So last week we talked about miracles, and one of the ways that we define them is it's, it's heaven invading to restore this world to what it once was. At the beginning, everything was good. Death actually became the intruder. Disease became the intruder. Depression became the intruder. And ultimately, all of that stuff will be expelled. That's the hope of the Christian faith. And so the miraculous is the invasion of God's design into this world, not to overthrow the natural order, but to restore the natural order as it was originally designed by God. It changes the way you think about it. But two of the other things that we talked about is God never does miracles as parlor tricks. He never does it just to, as petty tricks, you know, or selfish means. He's always, always, always teaching us a gospel lesson. One of the other things we talked about is whenever you come to a miracle, and this generation, our generation today, we are so, we have to see it, touch it, taste it, measure it. We've got to figure it out before we can ever affirm that we believe in it. And, you know, I was talking with middle schoolers in our, our school across the street, and I said, you know, one of the reasons why right now, if you go back in the, uh, the last 10 years, right now, this generation, this younger generation has a suicide rate that has doubled where it was 10 years ago. Anxiety rates are through the roof. People are having nervous breakdowns. And I said, you know, one of the, th- one of the shames of education is we've run away from the why questions. We view an education as it must answer what, how, where, when, and if you ask the ultimate questions, the why questions, and they leave you nowhere to go but a religious answer, in our public schools, you're not allowed to consider those questions. Is there hope beyond death? Is there a reason for suffering? Why are you here? We can't ask the, the deep why questions, and those are the only things that serve as a bomb to our souls. They're medicines. That's, that's, that's exactly what we need more than anything else. But in today's way of thinking, if I can't examine it under a microscope, it's not worth considering. And so that why question, always, always, always ask why. And so I want you to consider the life of Moses, because we're talking about anything Moses can do, Jesus can do better. That's kind of the idea. Jesus is a much greater Moses. And so you look at the life of Moses, and it comes after 400 years of silence, right? Abraham has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, who has 12 sons who go down to, to Egypt, in search of grain, they eventually get enslaved. And for 400 years, they're in slavery. And it just seems like, where is God? 
Pharaoh comes and decides that he's going to kill baby boys, but the midwives fear God and they disobey the tyrant. Moses ends up getting delivered in a basket in the Nile. When Moses turns 40, he kills the Egyptian guard. He flees from Egypt and goes off into the wilderness. The Pharaoh who sought to kill Moses dies and Moses then returns And so when he comes back on the scene to show his great power, the first plague that he's going to unleash by God's power upon Egypt is to turn the Nile to blood. Then you get to the Passover and a slain lamb is going to halt death. The spirit of death that comes over Egypt does not touch those that are marked by the blood and they are released from slavery. Moses goes out and he calls the 12 tribes to action and announces what their inheritance is going to be. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights on a mountain. He gives God's law and he gets instructions for building the tabernacle, which is this animal flesh tent where God is going to dwell. And you think, okay, well, that's neat. Then you get to the gospel. The Gospels of Jesus. And what do we learn about the life of Jesus? Well, we learn that he comes after 400 years of silence. There's been no prophet in Israel. Herod is killing baby boys. The Magi fear God, and they don't tell Herod that Jesus has been born. Jesus flees, not from Egypt, but to Egypt. Herod dies, and Jesus then returns. And his first miracle, he doesn't turn the Nile to blood. He turns water into wine. The slain lamb halts death and slavery. Instead of calling the 12 tribes, what does he do? He calls the 12 apostles. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He goes on the mountain and the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he do? He expands the law. He takes what Moses has said, and hey, it's even greater than you imagined. And now God himself dwells in a tent of human flesh. It is laying it down saying, okay, line them up, compare. The ancient Israel, Moses was the man. He got the seat of honor. He was the one they looked to. And now Jesus is coming saying, no, no, no. You not only have a new Moses, you have one that puts Moses to shame. He is far, far greater. Every single miracle that God does in the life and times of Moses is all pointing to Jesus. Every one of them. Every one of them is pointing you to the gospel. Every one of them saying, look at God's love affair. Look what he's going to do. And we, in retrospect, can look back at these miracles and go, wow. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through some of the miracles that happen in the life of Moses. So let's, let's look at Moses' life and look at all these miracles, which if we're not asking the why question, they seem utterly absurd. All of these miracles... If, if, I'm a, if I'm coming at it from a scientific perspective and I, I'm proving this rationalistically, I look like a moron. But here you come to these miracles. If you're not asking the why question, you're missing it. You just, you look like a fool. But this is what I want you to imagine. If God, from the time that he flung the universe into existence, spoke the universe into existence, he was on a mission for one story... He had this single-minded focus to take on the curse of man's failures upon himself to clothe you with righteousness so that death cannot touch you. If his great story is the story of his only son who comes into this world to rescue us, if that's his great motive, every single time he enters into humanity, he's singing that story. 
Every time he unleashes the miraculous, he's singing that story. And then, if there's a God who's that powerful that he can just intervene and overtake what we consider to be the natural, if he's got a purpose behind it, then I have no problem with it. But it's not parlor tricks. It's not random. We don't try to explain these away with science. And so let's start where God calls Moses. The burning bush. You guys know the burning bush. Why in the world do you think... I'm throwing this question out here. Here God comes to Moses, who's 80 years old. He's fled from Egypt. He's already kind of given up. I'm not going to save my people from slavery. And God comes to him, not just in any kind of bush. He doesn't come to him in like the mightiest tree he can find. He doesn't come in an oak or a redwood. He comes in the flame of a burning thorn bush and speaks to Moses and reveals his name. I am. And he tells Moses, go back. Free your people. I will be with you. Why does God choose to reveal himself to Moses in the flame of a burning thorn bush? In the scriptures, where do we first find thorns? The curse. That's right. In Genesis 3, right? Man has rebelled against God, spat in his face, said, I want the throne. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to be under you. I don't want to be on your rules. I want to be my own God. And God obliges and says, oh, all right, have it your way. And he says, now the earth is not going to just serve you. It's not going to cooperate. You're going to want to build and, and farm and harvest. And there's going to, it's going to rebel against you like you rebelled against me. And it says, thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. So thorns are the manifestation of the curse. And here on the very mountain where God will later reveal his law... He appears in the middle of the manifestation of the curse, thorns. And this is what's cool. Like, that's a, that's a, that's a shameful bush. This is, this is the consequence of sin. This is, this is what Adam's rebellion created. And here's the deal. God goes and takes up residency in the midst of that bush, in the middle of the curse, and the fires cannot overtake it. Why is that good news for me? Why is that good news for me? Because you're looking at a scumbag. You're looking at somebody that in my flesh, I am so arrogant. I am so self-serving. Everything about me wants to rebel against God naturally. But he's purchased me. He has won me. He comes and he dwells inside me. Even though I'm like that thorn bush. But he dwells in me and what will not happen to me? I, like that bush, when he dwells in me, will never be consumed. God is not so proud that he demands, I'm coming in a redwood, I'm coming in an oak, I'm coming with all, I demand majesty. No, even when he's, Moses is walking to him, right? And he says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And here's God in a thorn bush. Think about the humility that he's representing there. And then he gives Moses these instructions. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to deliver your people. And then he just gives these instructions. I will be with you. That's enough. Like that's, that's the one Moses is like, you want me to go up against the mightiest empire in the history of the world to this point. And all God does is says, I will be with you. That's enough. And we go, man, would I do that? Well, here's the deal. God has given you that same challenge, by the way. Right? God has said to you, I want you to take my gospel, 
to the ends of the world. I want you to go out to all the kingdoms. I want you to teach them to obey the things I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to go out to the kingdoms of this world, and I want you to win them. I want you to conquer them with love and with grace. And we're like, uh... And what's his one promise at the end of that command? I will be with you, even to the end of the age. So here we, we find that we can relate to this, the burning thorn bush. And so Moses goes back and he begins to announce to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God starts unleashing the series of 10 plagues. And the first of which is turning the Nile to blood. And that's, that's kind of wild. And this isn't just purposeless. So let me tell you, in Egypt, if you understood their mythology, and all of the ten plagues are designed, all these miracles are designed to tear down the Egyptian pantheon of gods. Every single one of them just tears down different gods. And the first one starts with the god Osiris. He's a big name in Egyptian mythology. Osiris was the god of the afterlife. He was the god that when you went through the hall of judgment that's recorded in the book of the dead, after you went through all of your little rituals and you recited all your stuff, if you're an Egyptian, you believe that eventually you get to stand before Osiris and he holds your eternal fate. And here's the deal. In Egypt, they believed that the Nile River was the bloodstream of Osiris. And so I want you to imagine for a moment, if you're an Egyptian, and here comes this pesky, you know, Israelite god Yahweh. Well, he woke up Osiris. Look, the Nile River, it really is becoming blood. They're all getting excited. One of our mighty gods is rising up. And then in a matter of days, what begins to happen? that blood begins to coagulate and everything in it begins to die. Now what do the Egyptians think? My hope of an afterlife. If the God of afterlife is dead, my hope is dead. I have no afterlife. And the Egyptian, you know, we tend to think of the Egyptians as being really wicked, but if you study the ancient culture, particularly during this dynasty or this period of dynasties, they're incredibly moralistic, like really, really, almost cripplingly moralistic. So of all the times when you come before the God at the end, you have to repeat these 42 statements of things that you've never done in your life. And if, if you're guilty, then you get chewed up and consumed by the God Amut, which had a crocodile head and a hippo body and a, or a hippo tail and a lion's body, and he would just devour you. But to avoid that fate, eternal fate, you had to say things like, I've never stolen. I've never lied. I've never committed adultery. I've never made somebody cry. I've never slandered. I've never rushed. I've never raised my voice. How you doing? You're going to get real familiar with Amut. <laughs> I've never acted with arrogance. That's my favorite because it comes after saying all those things, right? And so this is super, super moralistic. And God is coming to this moralistic system and he's saying it's garbage. This God of the afterlife that you think is going to hold you to all these high standards that you can't possibly meet. Dead. Gone. This is Moses' great first public miracle, turning the Nile into blood. What's Jesus' counterpart? Turning the water into wine. When you hear the miracle of water into wine, how do most people use that miracle? It's okay to drink, which, by the way, 
I agree with. Not to excess. But have a glass of wine. That's all right. We're, it's okay. We're not Baptists. <laughs> kidding, kidding. So anyway, here you have this miracle. And most people reduce this to just like, hey, Jesus was a partier. He liked to have wine. woo But this is how the passage goes. I want you to see the hidden truth behind this. On the third day, hmm, there's going to be a lot of those, by the way. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, so here's Mary, said to him, they have no wine. Now, this is a catastrophe in the ancient world. Like, whoever would have been the party planner, whoever was responsible for preparing this, you had to make sure that you had enough supplies. Otherwise, it was like a big social embarrassment. It would have been like, you know, when Laura and I got married, if the person who planned our party, like when we showed up to the place where the reception was, they were like, oh yeah, I forgot to book it. And 200 guests are there and it's just embarrassing and there's nothing to do because you've ran out of wine or you don't have the party hall. Like it would have been tremendously embarrassing. So Mary's like, can you do something? Which is interesting that she knows that he can do something. And Jesus said to her, woman, now this sounds like Jesus is just a smart aleck and mom needs to slap him, right? Like, woman? (laughs) You know, no. In the ancient world, this is a term of reverence. It's a term of deep affection, right? It's like when you get to the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, who Jesus loves, right? Just loves her to pieces. At the empty tomb, you know what his first word to her is? woman. It's the first word of Adam to his beloved bride, Eve. Woman, right? So this is not like derogatory. Woman, what does this have to do with me? No. It's, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's his hour? Death. You see it all throughout John. If you read the gospel of John, pay attention. The hour is always referring to his death. It's pretty instructive. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. And I want to stop there for a moment. In the ancient world, first century, the the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, who were the most popular sect or denomination of ancient Judaism, they were the most popular. They were wildly legalistic. So, like, when you went to eat, there was a particular way to wash your hands, and you had to pour water over your fingers, but if it went and dripped down behind your elbow, you had to do it again. On the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to tie knots. You weren't allowed to untie knots. You weren't allowed to start a fire, or you weren't allowed to put a fire out. You weren't allowed to do anything. You weren't allowed to carry property. Like, they were super, super, super legalistic. And so, there's a reason why Jesus says, get me the jars of purification, This is like for real sacred stuff. You didn't play around with this stuff in first century Judaism. Cleanliness, purification, the rites of purification, this is a big deal. So if you're going to mess around with those jars, and by the way, the reason why they're stone jars is because pottery was totally unacceptable for this role. Pottery kept filth in it. Stone jars resisted it. And so it had to be made out of stone. Otherwise, it was not kosher. It wouldn't make you clean in their eyes. And so Jesus says, go get the six stone water jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification. 
And each of them held 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this is pretty awesome because if you're talking about a wedding party, this is a lot of wine. Like, I did the math on how many ounces are in the average wine bottle. This is 900 bottles of wine if it's 30 gallons per stone jar. So this is like, he's got quite the selection, all right? And by the way, it wasn't like a wedding back in the ancient day, just so you don't think Jesus is like, everyone get drunk. No, the wedding party lasted for a week. It was a long celebration. And part of the message here we'll get to in a minute is with him, celebration never stops. There is a great abundance with him. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out. Take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. These are supposed to be used for purification. Jesus has just done a miracle. And he's transformed the water into wine. And so let's stop for a moment because let's put on our symbolism hats. What is wine? It's blood. And Jesus doesn't invent that, by the way. If you go back to the beginning in in Genesis 49, when Jacob announces that the tribe of Judah would be the line from which the Messiah comes, you know what it says? And his garments will be washed in the blood of grapes. You get to Revelation, you know what it says? That your robes will be made white in the blood of the Lamb. And so you have this weird, like, that doesn't make sense. You don't clean robes in the blood of grapes. You don't clean robes in the blood of the lamb. This makes no sense. And so hear what Jesus is doing. He's going to the Jews of his day saying, you've put so much emphasis on man-made stuff, thinking that it's going to make you clean. Get rid of the water. It's not going to work. If you want to be clean, you need to be washed in the blood. Brilliant, beautiful. And by the way, the first miracle that Moses did, he's tearing down Osiris. He's tearing down this idea that moralism is going to get you eternal life. That moralism is going to make you clean. You cannot get there. If you've ever raised your voice, you're condemned. Jesus says, all right. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How about that one? That's the command I give to you. You don't stand a chance. You can't clean up and spray perfume on a spiritual corpse, hoping that you're going to be good enough. You can't. But the good news is Jesus loves you enough that he is going to wash you clean in the blood of the Lamb And he is the lamb. He's the only hope you you have. And so when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. But when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. So if you were like me in college, this would be like, you drink the Bud Light first, which is the good beer for me, by the way. And then you hold off on the natty light until later. But he says, usually you drink the good wine first and you save the bad wine for when people have a buzz and they really don't care what it tastes like anymore. They bring it on. And he's like, holy cow, this is the best wine. I've, I've never tasted wine this good. You've kept the best wine until now. And then it says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. What's the messages that you find in this miracle? One, water's not going to cleanse you. Man-made effort's not going to cleanse you. You need the blood. What else do you see in this miracle? What else is Jesus teaching us here? There's enough for everyone. An abundance. You'll never go through it. It never runs out. It's, there's enough for everybody. It cleanses. There's this, and it's celebratory. When you come to Jesus, it's not like, oh, I had to die for you. You should feel really guilty about this. He does it in the middle of a wedding celebration. Why? Because the blood of the lamb that washes you clean makes you his bride. He will rejoice over you. And he would do it, you know, I was reading Isaiah 53 this morning. And Isaiah 53 is written 700 years before Jesus is born. And it goes through and it talks about, man, by his stripes we're healed. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He carries all this pain, right? And you're thinking, oh man, that's, that's for me. And then at, there's this verse in there that I've, I've read over so many times, but I'm like, that's awesome. It says, out of his agony, he will see what his pain has purchased and he will be satisfied. Do you get that? Like Jesus, the infinite cost on a cross, when he looks through the pain, he sees you and he's satisfied. So let me just stop from, what does that mean he's going to have to, for him to go to the cross and then somehow look at me <laughs> and be satisfied with what he's winning? What? You're going to have to do some serious wonders with me. Like, in the long run, when I get to heaven, God only knows what he is going to do with his people to where that suffering would be totally worth it. It's awesome. One of the other things I like is the glory comes at the end. He saves the best for last. There's a hopeful message in that, right? Like, you continue on, and the best is yet to come. Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friend, for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed what you hear, please subscribe and give us a good rating so that other people can find Out of Water also. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.